This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump posted a crazy 46-minute video on social media in which he held up charts and ranted about elections. Now, here's the clip I most want you to hear. And there is no clip. I am not going to play a clip. Why? No, not a Jay Rosen argument about the press needing to keep this information from you in an exercise of journalistic hygiene. No, I'm not saying it's simply totally not newsworthy. It's news, well, I don't want to say it's newsworthy. I don't even want to say it's news warranted. It's news non-quarantined. You know, the president, he's setting new records in being unpresidential. That is at least notable. But here's the general rule that I've been thinking about and would like to articulate. So I shall. Trump should be covered and should have been covered all along because he was a phenomenon and that was something to understand. So that was before he even started winning primaries. And then as an actual successful candidate, you need to cover him. And then as president, you cover him as maybe a threat to contain. We did need to know. But now, what is he? The tangible outgrowths of his words are pretty much non-existent. Used to be he'd say something, decree something. There might have been some actual real-world consequences to those words. Not anymore. It's correct to generally keep tabs on Donald Trump to figure out what his fits and protestations are, but it's more important to know that they're happening rather than what the exact content is. Because, and this is the important point, Trump and legitimacy. The legitimacy of Trump coverage is tied to the legitimacy of his power, and his power was gained because of the legitimacy of his office. And as he veers further and further from legitimacy, he becomes more and more ignorable. Now, when I say legitimacy, I don't mean something like, oh, this is simply unacceptable or shocking or wrong. I mean, he was important because he was president. The president is a legitimate office. He had all of that legitimacy. He had the legitimate powers of the office at his disposal, even if he acted unpresidential, quote unquote, it's a hazy concept. And because he was president, kind of ipso facto, he was acting presidentially, sadly enough. But now what he's trying to do is use suasion and distraction to gain illegitimate power. But Trump has never actually been good at wielding illegitimate power, not real illegitimate power. Yeah, he could browbeat people on The Celebrity Apprentice, but there are many people and entities who know how to wield power that isn't legitimate. You could say something like the deep state or the administrative state. There are power brokers in Washington. There are even, you know, loud radio voices that actually can affect change and they know it. But Trump was never influential in an illegitimate way. He never had much power before he had the actual literal power. Even when he was lobbing charges that Barack Obama 
Obama was not born in America. It didn't really go anywhere. It was just a joke. And it, it really wasn't the case that, ah, it was a joke, but we should have paid attention. We'd be fine not paying attention. What needed to happen was him not to win the presidency. And it didn't really depend on us having paid attention or not paid attention to the birtherism. Even as Trump battled legitimacy and mocked legitimacy and mocked the idea of being presidential. Every bit of power he had was because of the legitimacy of the office. And once the legitimacy of his power began to ebb, he's acting without the legitimacy of the office at a time of powerlessness. And once that's happening, as it is now, I find that this is content that I should skip. I will, however, revisit one incident in Trump's past in this remembrance of things Trump. Let us review Trump's diplomacy with North Korea. He met Kim Jong-un in Singapore in 2018, the first time a U.S. president had ever met with a North Korean leader. The meeting was set in March, canceled in May, and it actually happened in June. In February of the next year, the two men met in Hanoi, but that meeting was somewhat of a disaster. No agreement came of it, and it ended rather early. And then in June of 2019, Donald Trump did become the first president to set foot through the DMZ and into North Korea, which was, well, it was something. And what was the biggest notable brouhaha? It was over challenge coins. Remember these? The commemorative tchotchkes and the Trump-Kim Summit challenge coin featured profiles of both leaders. The depiction of the squat Kim Jong-un on a semi-official piece of nuministic effluvia, it caused consternation among Republicans and Democrats alike. As far as what actually happened, well, Donald Trump made this promise. In the end, it'll work out. Can't tell you exactly how or why, but it always does. It's going to work out. Did it? Has it? The latest development, six months ago, North Korea blew up the joint liaison office used for talks between it and South Korea. The latest sign that relations between the two countries are terrible. According to CNN, North Korea framed its decision to destroy the liaison office as a retaliatory measure after a group of defectors used balloons to send anti-North Korean leaflets north of the DMZ. You know, come to think of it, those little coins are probably the most meaningful thing to come out of the entirety of the Trump administration's North Korean diplomatic efforts. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about one thing of one of the Georgia Senate races that has been sticking in my craw a little bit. But first, I talked to a longtime workers' rights lawyer who has written a book about mediation because Fred Golder has realized the only way to really get anywhere is to have both sides sit down and work it out. How to do that? Well, he's here to tell us. Frederick T. Golder, author of Reaching Common Ground, A Comprehensive Guide to Conflict Resolution. Up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we are at a time of unprecedented unemployment, and so often we say unprecedented, and then we moor it to something that is hard to quantify, but not with unemployment. Unprecedented unemployment, and many workers are finding that once they, lay, they are laid off, that is it. 
There is no consideration. Sometimes the coffers are bare at their company. Sometimes the employer just doesn't want to give them anything. And under the law, they don't have to. Severance is a large topic that I think a lot of American workers are either ignorant of or become aware of only when it's too late. But let's spin it out from there in this discussion because I'm joined by a Frederick T. Golder, who is a mediator and labor arbitrator for years and an adjunct professor of law at University of Massachusetts School of Law. And he's written a new book called Reaching Common Ground about conflict resolution. Because along with all the sturm and drang of the economy and COVID, there is inarguably a rise in conflict, people at each other's throats. And so Golder's been thinking about this in his professional capacity for years and years. Fred, welcome to The Gist. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So let me let me just give you a little background. All right. I was and am still an advocate for workers. I have been for years. Uh, and for more than 30 years, I represented workers and tried cases. I tried over 200 cases in my career as a trial lawyer, and I realized somewhere down the road that there has to be a better way to do this. The workers were suffering. The employers weren't benefiting either from all of these lawsuits and all these trials. And the bottom line was the workers were suffering as well. So nobody was benefiting except really the lawyers who represented the employers, they were making a fortune of money defending these lawsuits while the employers were losing sometimes very valuable workers. So you weren't benefiting as a lawyer for the workers? Not generally, because most of the time, and I, I realize it now more than I did then, most of the time, the workers did not prevail in their lawsuits. And it wasn't that I wasn't competent as a trial lawyer. It turned out that most of my colleagues who represented workers uh, lost their cases as well for a variety of reasons. First of all, when I started practicing law, most of the judges uh, were had light skin and most of them were men. So here we are, here we have a situation that the people who, who were really at the elite, the male judges who were essentially given all the benefits of the doubt, they, they had the power. So people, for example, who, uh, women were mm-hmm. denigrated, women were difficult. I tried two of the first sexual harassment cases in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And interestingly enough, they didn't even have a word for it when I tried my first case. So what year, what year was this, would you say? This was back in the early 1970s. So were, were there laws on the books that disallowed discrimination based on sex or gender? Or were you kind of having to try to even convince someone that that shouldn't be allowed rather than being able to point to a law? Oh, this was a very, very recent law that was passed. The first law in 1963 dealt with Equal Pay Act. So the law was designed to make sure that men and women were paid the same. But of course, the way the employers got around that was they gave men different titles to women. Even though women were performing sometimes even more work than the men, they gave them titles, and that way they could do their thing, and women were discriminated against. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 provided civil rights for women 
for people of color, religion. That was the Civil Rights Act. And an interesting history to that, the Southern Democrats were completely opposed to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They didn't want it. So they said, I know how we're going to defeat this. We're going to add a protected class, women. And because they put in women, they thought they were going to be able to defeat the act because they- Right. It was supposed to be a poison pill. Exactly. They didn't want people of color to have equal employment opportunity because they had a system of Jim Crow that worked really well for them down in the South. So all of that is part of the history. So initially when the law was passed, very few people represented workers. Very few people could even get representation. I I tell you an interesting story. Uh, I went to New York for a conference and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there. She was one of the speakers, brilliant, incisive, very enjoyable. And I went up to her after after uh, after her talk and I said, tell me, um, how many people in New York represent workers? And this was in the 70s. She put up her hand. She said, you can count them on one hand. So when you started taking these cases, and they were, there were very few, you had just a little bit of law to point to. Um, is that right? And not a whole lot of precedent. So it was an uphill climb just in convincing judges. And I don't know, was it jury trials? Well, here's the thing. In the beginning, in the beginning, there were no jury trials. These cases were tried to judges. So yeah. can you imagine trying a sex harassment case to a white male judge? Who had never maybe even heard of the term. Yeah. They were clueless. They said, discrimination? That's crazy. What are they doing? What are they talking about? So the, I had judges that were so their biases were so obvious, they didn't even realize they had biases. So you would say that it's not that the cases got stronger. The big fulcrum of change was the people hearing the case, the judges, because they were also making the judgments. That was the big thing that caused change. That's correct. And more and more of these cases started to arise and more and more people from different backgrounds started to be making decisions things started to change for the benefit of workers. However, these cases took a long, long time. I had one case I had to try three times. I tried it. I won it. They appealed it. They reversed it. I tried it a second time. They appealed it. They reversed it. I tried it a third time. They appealed it. And I I won that case. It took me 16 years to finally get that case to a conclusion. And an interesting case, I tried a case, an age discrimination case, and my client said after the trial, and we we got a very nice verdict, it was over half a million dollars, and he said to me, and this really started getting me thinking, maybe we've got to try a better way. And he said, look, don't get me wrong, I appreciate all the work you did for me, but if I had my choice, he said, I'd rather have a job. Money is money, he said, but a job, he said, that, that's so much more important to have a job. Right. And so over 16 years and you eventually get the good result, but I'm sure your client's life is full of anxiety to some extent yours is, and it's not fulfilling. So as you say, no one is winning in that situation. That's what actually led me to write my first book on uncivil, I call it uncivil rights, a guide mm-hmm. to workers' rights because the people I was, I would represent, they didn't understand the system. They thought they had a valid claim. All they had to do was go to court, tell their story, 
and they'd win. And they had no clue about the system. But let's lay out some of the law. So tell me if I'm right. The way to get redress if you are fired is you have to be in a protected class. Is that correct? That's correct. So a lot of people, I I guess, think I was fired so unfairly, and they might be right. They might be fired just because of just their boss woke up grumpy that day. But unless they're in a protected class, they have no rights. They have no redress. They may have rights. And it's all explained in the first book I wrote on civil rights. But here's the bottom line. You can be fired for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. But you can't be fired if you're in a protected, if that's the reason you're fired, you can't be fired if you're in a protected class, if that's the reason. But here's the the rub, Mike. How do you prove that it was your race, your color, your sex? How do you prove that? Because the employer always can come up with a reason. There are so many different laws that it becomes very difficult and confusing for an an ordinary person to understand what the hell is going on here. Why was I fired? And sometimes you don't get the real reason. We have these protected classes. They should be protected and uh, businesses should not be able to discriminate. So the law puts that, writes that down and writes that into the law. And from there, though, to the actual application of the law, you know, this is what your first book and much of your career and your anecdote about 16 years talks to. It's a lot easier to write a law than to actually get de facto justice. So is the actual system, as it's actually constructed, that you have these laws that say what should or shouldn't happen, but in real life, a company knows that it doesn't want to go through a suit, a individual knows that they don't have the deepest pockets in the world, but the company maybe doesn't want to go through a suit. And so you hope things work out if each of the sides is sufficiently resourced to plausibly threaten the other. Is that like the real system? That unfortunately, you have a system where you've got one side which has most of the power And you have the other side, which is the worker, who has very little power. So the sad part is, even though you have laws that are designed to protect people because they're not effective, because they're very expensive, very time-consuming, and very uncertain, they're not really very effective. So that led me to mediation as a way of getting people to resolve these conflicts and get them to move on with their lives. Why, if, if most of the uh, deck is stacked in favor of big corporations, why would they want to go through mediation rather than just saying, you know, we'll take our chances in the courts. It's been pretty good to us so far. I had one case involving a New York lawyer, terrific, really excellent, excellent trial lawyer. And we spent seven or eight years litigating the case. And he made I want to say he made a half a million dollars defending the lawsuit. So he doesn't have an interest in getting his case solved too quickly. So seven or eight years was great. It was an annuity for him and his law firm. But the employers are starting to get, and this has been a while, they're getting smarter. And they said, wait a second, why am I paying $500,000 to defend a lawsuit 
when I can go into a mediation, have a, an interesting conversation, satisfy the needs of this employee, give him or her a good uh, wave goodbye, uh, and save myself a half a million dollars in, in legal fees. And the other thing is you've got the negative publicity that comes with a lawsuit. So those things happen to companies, and companies aren't stupid. They want to make money. It's not about black and white, Mike. It's about green. And I think the companies are getting smarter, and they're saying, you know what? The customers look I – I want my staff to look like the people we're serving. So diversity, equity, inclusion helps the bottom line. So your guide, Reaching Common Ground, it really is a practical guide. It has so many different theories of personality types and checklists. Oh, my God, all the checklists. So it is, to me, uh, for someone who is or an entity or a group that is right on the verge of saying, I think mediation might be for me. Let me read this, and then I'll, I'll be able to decide whether it is correct. But I want to ask you a couple questions about the implications of mediation. I don't know how well the system as it is now works, but isn't a part of it that there is a public declaration of this company did wrong and the courts have found that you have violated the civil rights of this person and therefore the world knows your day of justice, your day in the sun is granted. Maybe it doesn't work out perfectly or far from perfectly, but isn't that a strength of the courts? And with mediation, might we be brushing some of the the public shaming aspects of the law as written under the table? Mike, I think we need both. I mm-hmm. uh, I have a, uh, a dear colleague of mine who worked for Polaroid, and she, she put together some wonderful programs at Polaroid. And she said that you, when she said you, she, to me, she said, you are necessary for the system to work. Because unless employers understand that there are people out there like you who will take on these cases, who take on these causes because they believe people in the workplace should be treated well, they should be valued, they should be esteemed, and when things don't work out, they should be treated fairly as they exit the company. But the idea is treat people fairly. So she said, it's because of you because of the threat of getting a letter from Golder, that the employers are much more amenable to getting these cases resolved without litigation. So that was kind of, kind of a reason why we do need the court system, we do need trials, and we need them so that employers will realize the way forward is to treat people decently and to disregard the color of their skin, their gender, their religion, their national origin, and learn to work together for a common purpose, for a common goal. Whatever your prescription for society, aren't you to some extent writing against your own self-interest? Yes. It's sort of like dentists who advocate for fluoridation in the water. Yes, I am. But remember, Mike, my whole thing was to try to make a better world. The worst thing you can do, really, is to waste talent. And what this country has done is wasted talent. People with dark skin have not been given opportunities that they should have, and we all lose for that. The same thing about women. Women were denigrated 
for years. And now companies and others are starting to realize that while women are different than men, they add value to our country, our society, and we need everybody. If the pandemic has taught us one thing, everybody counts. If it wasn't for the farm workers picking the, the vegetables and the fruits and the farmers, where would we be? So everybody counts. Everybody matters. Frederick Golder is a longtime labor lawyer. He is also a mediator and labor arbitrator. Uh, in addition to his previous work, Uncivil Rights, A Guide to Workers' Rights, he is out now with Reaching Common Ground, a comprehensive guide to conflict resolution. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. David Perdue is not a good senator. He voted to acquit Trump. He voted against the economic stimulus, or rather opposed it before it could even come to a vote. He's against any kind of gun control, really. He's terrible on the environment. He's also, from what you hear, pretty mean. Not well liked within the Republican caucus. But never mind that. He's just a bad senator. I would not vote for him. I advise you not to if you live in Georgia. But that doesn't mean that every allegation against him is true. And if we are going to be fair, consistent, and journalistic, and we are, meaning I'm going to be, and I'm dragging you along for this one, we should not make up silly charges and engage in insinuations not backed up by facts, because you wouldn't want it done to your preferred candidate. So here is maybe that guy, John Ossoff, who is running against Purdue in Georgia. And our senator, while he's been blocking desperately needed financial relief for ordinary working people here in Georgia and for businesses has been using his office to enrich himself. Ossoff then listed trades that Purdue made in the defense and healthcare industries while he served on Senate committees that oversaw those industries. He went on to say, and as we know, he was buying shares and manufacturers of vaccines and medical equipment and dumping his casino shares while he had access to classified briefings on COVID-19 and was claiming in public that this disease was no deadlier than the flu. Well, we do know some of that, but we don't. Well, we do know some of that, but we don't know why. We know, to go back to Ossoff's first charge, that it is unconscionable for Purdue to be a consistent blockade to COVID relief, that that is wrong. And then, as Asif said, while at the same time, you know what? It's so wrong, you could put anything in there. He's against needed COVID relief, while at the same time, wearing high-collared shirts. While at the same time, flossing less than once daily. While at the same time, getting sucked into the Queen's gambit in a way he did not expect. But the charge is that he traded Pfizer stock after he had secret briefings, but before Pfizer announced they were working on a vaccine. It sounds pretty damning. Sounds. Here's what we know. David Perdue bought Pfizer stock February 27th and 28th. That is true. And he had been in briefings as a senator about the coronavirus. That is true. But if he'd never gone to the briefings, if he just maybe glanced at the biggest, most important newspaper in the United States, it's not like he could miss the idea that COVID was a serious thing. The day before Purdue bought his first batch of Pfizer stock, here was the big main story, above the fold, right side, lead story, New York Times, 
it could be bad. Viral crisis in U.S. is deemed likely. Lead federal health officials starkly warned on Tuesday that the new coronavirus will almost certainly spread in the United States and that hospitals, businesses, and schools should begin making preparations. Quote, it's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather a question of exactly when this will happen. Dr. Nancy Messonier, director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, said in a news briefing. Remember, she was silenced thereafter. The next day, the lead story, the New York Times, was about Pence being put in charge of the coronavirus task force. And the day after that, the lead story was about coronavirus destroying supply chains and the stock market reacting. Anyone who owned a lick of stock in America was thinking, coronavirus, what do I do? Maybe you dump Caesar's Casino. That's a natural and turned out to be a correct reaction. David Perdue, or at least his advisor, did that. And what about buying Pfizer? Well, the intimations are that Purdue must have known that Pfizer was about to try to develop a vaccine. Dr. Eric Ding, epidemiologist and health economist, senior fellow at Harvard, guy who goes on the news a lot to tell us about the coronavirus, tweets, holy smokes, Senator Purdue's broker bought Pfizer stock in Feb, even when Pfizer warned of bad outlook, then Pfizer announced COVID-19 vaccination plans soon after. Coincidence? The doctor asks. No, no, in fact, it wasn't a coincidence, not a coincidence at all. For you see, Pfizer, after Johnson & Johnson, is the largest pharmaceutical company in the United States. So it is actually not a coincidence that they would try to develop a vaccine. I'd call it something of an inevitability. Oh, by the way, when Pfizer announced that it was trying to make a vaccine, by the way, that also doesn't mean that they were going to, but when they announced they were trying to make a vaccine, let's look at what the stock market did with that announcement. So what if Purdue hadn't known about it a week before hand? What if he only traded on the news, bought the stock after they made their public announcement? Well, the stock went down and it stayed down for about a month. In fact, the stock has gone up only a little bit since Purdue's purchase. It went up less than if he used all that money and just put it into an S&P 500 index fund. Now, the part criticizing Purdue for his dismissiveness about the virus, no worse than a cold. That's a good point. You should vote against the guy for that. The part about not passing relief, as I said, that's a great point. Voters should say, I would like some relief from the government. If I vote against this guy, I'm likely to get some. You know, I'd do that. I would do that. But the part about that it must be nefarious timing for the savvy and insidery Senator Purdue to somehow know that the drug company Pfizer would try to invent a drug to combat the biggest healthcare threat of our age? Yeah, it's really quite obvious Pfizer would do that, and the rest of it is a stupid conjecture. So I look at Crew, the Citizens for Ethics, which have often been a watchdog on Donald Trump. You know, their objection to this, their pointed objection to this, I think diminishes their standing. Every time they label a Trump ally who wipes his own tuchus with toilet paper he may have invested in, it just makes me take crew less seriously. They tweeted, in a series of transactions last February, Senator Perdue invested up to $245,000 in the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. That was just one week before Pfizer announced that it would develop a vaccine, raising questions about what he knew and when. The answer of what he knew, the stuff on the front page of the New York Times, The when, the day before he bought Pfizer. Even Bette Midler looked at that curious, so-called curious Pfizer trade and called Purdue, quote, a regular Nostradamus. 
Well, I shan't ding the divine Miss M. I, sh- I won't call her a regular Cassandra. But, you know, some of these watchdogs are crying wolf. Let's try to be judicious and sensible with our charges against even bad actors, because it could be true generally that they're bad actors. It doesn't mean that every one of their actions is a crime against the public trust. And that's it for today's show. If just producer Margaret Kelly wanted to hear 46 minutes worth of rantings from a guy from Queens, she'd ask her old doorman, Phil, hey, Phil, how you doing? Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He thinks with the right Patreon model, doorman Phil could put out, say, two episodes for free a week, one behind a paywall, make a go of it. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She points out that's exactly how Dan Bongino started. The gist you heard from Fred Kaplan yesterday, Fred Golder today. Thus concludes Fred Fest 2020. Stay tuned next week as we interview the director of The Farewell and the host of Weekend Edition Sunday, Lulu Wang, Lulu Garcia Navarro, Lulu Palooza. I'm also looking to pair a guest with Coach Jimbo Fisher to attempt a Jimbo Jamboree. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>